0: Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast 106.7 FM KSO Cottage Grove in Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FMWLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. In coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Nicole Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman. I'm Angie Coro sitting in for him and Desi today. They will be back on the next show. So what do you say we start this show where we left the last one off? If you missed that last show, you can find it on Bradblog.com for my interview with Scott Dworkin of the Democratic Coalition Against Trump, DCAT. That used to be Keep America Great. Dr- Great, in case you're keeping track. Now, they have been painstakingly documenting every connection between Trump and his businesses and his family members and Russia. And these range from, hey, these guys are in the same frame of the same picture at the same time, all the way up to some 200 businesses incorporated in Russia with the Trump name appearing somewhere. So it goes from the very tiny to the very in-your-face. Uh, Richard Esko, R.J. Esco, is with the Campaign for America's Future, ourfuture.org. And he has another angle on this, starting with do not get ahead of yourself. And know what you are talking about before you jump on the all things trump or all things russia train. So we're going to get into his latest post on the Our Future site, and then some more after that. Richard, thank you for joining me.
1: Always a pleasure, Angie
0: principles for progressives to follow on Trump's ties to Russia. You I got to give you credit. You have been one of the holdouts to say wait for proof, wait for proof, wait for proof. And and Dworkin's coming up with a lot of proof, but it doesn't prove how deep the uh, connections go and what those connections actually mean.
1: Well, see, I'm old enough. I I I'm I was a little kid, but I'm old enough to remember the tail end of uh, red dating. And red baiting always uh, sounded reasonable to people who had a reason to believe it, if you know what I mean. So, I mean, a lot of Democrats have a lot of reasons to believe, look, one of the things I say in my piece is we know there are connections between Trump and Russia. We know there are connections between Rex Tillerson and Russia, but we don't know that those connections have to do with Russian secret agents taking over the US government or with the outcome of the 2016 election so by all means i don't see how anybody involved in this wouldn't want an in-depth independent investigation of all the ties between trump and trump's campaign and trump's team and russia by all means let's have at it but my problem with all of it is that people are getting way ahead of them first of all when when The intelligence agencies, uh, under the direction of James Clapper, who flat out committed perjury before the United States Congress, asserts certain things about the election campaign and offers no proof. They offered no proof in their report. They just said things. And at the same time, baits the left and demonizes the left while ignoring all these corporate connections between Trump and Russia. There's an agenda going on there that Democrats should not buy into, Mm -hmm. and Democrats. And Democrats should also stay out of the business of smearing people, including people they may not like, like Jill Stein, just because, A, they're on the left, and, B, they went to a banquet for RT television. You know, that's that's close to McCarthyism, and that makes me super uncomfortable.
0: Well, it also dilutes the effect of – it dilutes the idea of all the other legit connections when you say, oh, look, here she is in the same picture, ergo she's aiding and abetting Russia.
1: Yeah. And and, and by the way, you know, isn't it interesting? that these representatives of the national security state, which is sometimes called the deep state, which Eisenhower, a Republican, called the military-industrial complex, isn't it interesting that these representatives of the military-industrial-national security complex ignored all the corporate ties between Trump and Russia, between Rex Tillerson and Russia, Rex Tillerson, of course, being his secretary of state who was the head of ExxonMobil, ignored all of that and instead said incorrectly that Trump was supported by RT, which has all these lefties on it. Mm -hmm. And isn't it interesting that some Democrats have picked up on that theme and said, well, Jill Stein is a Putinite. You know, that was the way Joy Reid on MSNBC dismissed her isn't it just interesting that something that's about two sets of oligarchs coming together, the Russian oligarchs and the American oligarchs under Trump, suddenly becomes about witch hunting the left? Shouldn't that make genuine progressives really uncomfortable?
0: When you put it in that context, yeah. Absolutely.
1: So, so yeah. So I, I, I don't know the guy you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I don't know his group, and I don't know what his pitch is. But I've heard a lot of Democrats, basically too many, dismissing legitimate complaints about the DNC, dismissing uh, legitimate complaints about democratic centrist policy and corporate lobbyist money. We saw that this weekend. All of these things getting dismissed just because uh, just because it's easier to blame Russia for everything. Well, you know what? Democrats, including Hillary Clinton's laws, you know what? Russia didn't cost Democrats the loss of two thirds of governorships, two thirds of state houses, Congress, you know, all those seats in Congress, other dirty tricks may have by Republicans, but Democratic failures account for a lot of them, too. So my other complaint about the Russia excuse is that it allows uh, Democrats to let them off the hook for their own, themselves off the hook for their own failures when I think they should be holding themselves accountable.
0: Uh, let me clarify for our listeners who don't know. Uh, Scott Tworkin is with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's with Decat, and and what they're doing is they're combing through business records, and what they're 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 building a log of business connections that you can go to their website and and check out. So uh, I think he's doing some marvelous work there. I also think that I'm glad I have your perspective, Richard, because. It is easy to jump to conclusions at that point and say, "Okay, now I have seen enough evidence. I believe X, Y, Z is going on. But from there, you make the mistake of extrapolating and say, by golly, they stole the election or by golly, they're undermining the country. You know, I think the toughest point in your piece that I'm directing people to is don't spread inaccurate or poorly sourced news. And putting the shrieks from the right about fake news aside we are in an era when you see what looks to be a convincing article and you follow a link and it links to something else and it links to something else. And you can spend an inordinate amount of time trying to source a single news story. So that that may be the biggest challenge in your article is don't spread inaccurate or poorly sourced news.
1: Yeah, I'll give you a simple example, Angie. OK, Robbie Mook, was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, blew it, in my opinion, blew it uh, completely. Wrote a piece where he said, I'm afraid Russia is stealing our elections or something. I can't remember the title, but in, in it was a link to something where he talked about the complex infrastructure Russia has built to infect public discourse with false or stolen information. And he wrote, It isn't going anywhere and can be unleashed at any time on any issue, domestic or international. And he includes a link. But if you follow the link, it's to an article in BuzzFeed called How Teens in the Balkans Are Duping Trump Supporters with Fake News. Nothing to do with Russia, completely different country, Macedonia, certainly not government-driven. It's teenagers in Macedonia. Oh. So in that case, you're actually misleading. So Democrats are going to go out every time you criticize the Democratic Party, oh, it's Russia again infecting the public discourse. That is misleading, and that's something that Democrats, progressives certainly, should reject.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Hey, let's before I let you go, because I want to make sure we get to this. You have written a piece on OurFuture.org about CPAC and the DNC. Boy, that was it was just so contentious to see the, the fight breaking out between Perez and Ellison, one a very convincing couple of articles came out to the point that they really weren't all that different under the surface. It was just a matter of the DNC asserting power by saying, you know, we're not going to take the perceived Sandersite. We're going to get somebody who's more on our side. Well, Let's deconstruct that a little bit. Do you think there was a great deal of difference between Ellison
1: and Perez? I think there was enough. I'll tell you. I think Perez is a is a re- decently progressive guy, but he was on. The, you know, he played along with the corporate Democrats on the TPP and became a point person for the that bad trade deal, uh, which is something Keith Ellison opposed. Then he went easy on the banks under. Uh, the Obama administration, which Ellison would not have done. So I think the message is, well, we we know that the party's turning more progressive, but let's make sure we get we can get a progressive who will play ball. And I don't think that's what the Democrats needed in right now. I'm glad that he and, and Keith are, are, are having a show of unity. It's very nice. But I think it sends the wrong message to the base and to the party. I think the party, you know, I, I, as I said in my piece about it, Perez isn't the problem. Power is the problem. And I think the center of power in the party still needs to shift.
0: I spoke with someone last week, a very thoughtful professor uh, from Framingham University, and he was making the case that what we saw happen just in the battle for CPAC, let alone the outcome of CPAC, was to say the Democrats are never going to get it. They are too entrenched. There's too much money there. And if there's a time to start a third party, here you have it and I'm one of those people who kind of breaks out in hives every time I hear a third party. He did make a pretty decent case, though, and I just wanted to run that by you and see what you thought.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a rock and a hard place because if you go to a third party, uh, you're you're not going to be on the ballot. You have all sorts of technical problems, so I'm not a third party guy at this point, but the lesson to me was that the Democrats are evolving, but much too slowly for conditions and circumstances around us. So it's kind of like have a third party in your mind, but, you know, have a third party of the heart, but go in and take over that Democratic Party from top to bottom, what they're doing in California, they're working on California, they're working on the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. I think it's Democratic Party power structure and most of the entrenched politicians in the Democratic Party, including the Clintons and as beloved as he is, including as Obama, I think they got to go. I think there needs to be a new party leadership, a new generation of leaders of whatever age, but a new generation. And, uh, you know, I, maybe in a third party, you know, working families party in, because of the conditions in New York can work. But I think think of it more as an independent faction that can uh, use the Democratic Party to its own ends where it's appropriate.
0: That that sounds more doable to me, definitely. And you are seeing some changes in California and people are are actively talking about going after Senator Feinstein and her business connections, some of which you really have to wonder about her connections to businesses through her husband, which have always been difficult for me to swallow. But she always Mm -hmm. seems so much a certainty and so much part of the system. I don't think anybody ever seriously talked about saying maybe it's time for her to sit down. And now you're hearing that.
1: Yeah, just as Hillary was considered inevitable, and then Bernie came along to challenge it. I think we should challenge every Democrat who seems too corporate. I I thought Feinstein should be challenged last time around, you know, six years ago. And um, I think it's certainly, maybe it was too early then, but I think people have got to say the party's got to represent dramatic change, and if it doesn't represent dramatic change, then there's got to be a change. Now, Feinstein's been good on... Uh, sometimes on intelligence issues. Probably. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I think overall, it's probably time for her to either have a change of heart or or Democrats to to challenge her. I think every Democrat like that should be challenged.
0: RJ, you know how much I love talking to you and thank you for making time.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure, Angie. You know that. <sighs>
0: RJ Esco. He is host of The Zero Hour. You can find them online as you can find his articles I've been talking about at ourfuture.org. Coming up on the broadcast, very nasty developments as Trump continues to grind undocumented immigrants and those seeking asylum under his heels to demonstrate his power. We will talk to one of San Francisco's most eminent lawyer activists on how to defend a sanctuary city. That is next on the (laughs) broadcast.
2: Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world, and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media, you know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump, must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
0: It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero, in for Brad Friedman. Today, Donald Trump's attack on undocumented immigrants is unrelenting. And among other changes, parole in place has been changed. And that's been allowing close undocumented relatives of U.S. service members and veterans to apply for a green card without leaving the U.S. Point there to keep military families together. Now, all of these changes have triggered a wave of action from so-called sanctuary cities. One example, San Francisco, which has had a long history of civil rights defense of the underdog. Of course, Trump operates on the federal level and the tug of war between what rights accrue to city, county and state governments when interests conflict with the federal government has taken on one face after another over the years. We're going to talk to Jim Brosnahan. He's been named among the top 30 trial lawyers in the United States. He's one of the most respected and recognized trial lawyers in the United States, and he has an active practice of civil and criminal cases. Thank you so much for taking time, Jim.
3: Thank you. It's nice to be on.
0: Let me ask you this. To the layperson, me, (laughs) this sounds like a case of the state attempting to step in and correct the federal government, or at least have protections from the federal government, when the feds have abdicated protections of civil rights. Is that a fair read of the situation?
3: Uh, Well, it it gets you part of the way there. I think that uh, what is involved is part legal, it's part religious, Uh, And it's part moral. As to the legal part, people have a right under the law in the United States to claim asylum if they come from a country where they've been politically oppressed in some way. That idea is not necessarily understood by everybody, but it's a very important idea. So number one, if somebody's entitled to asylum, they're entitled to a hearing, and they can't just be put on a bus and dumped in Tijuana, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, there is the religious history goes back to the 1500s on sanctuary. And it it basically got its start that if somebody was being uh, pursued criminally, they could go into a church and the authorities would not go in there. And there's a lot to that history that we don't have time to cover this morning. But uh, that's that's the whole thing. In the 80s, When people were coming from El Salvador and Guatemala, there were horrible conditions there. And I think sometimes uh, some of us perhaps don't focus enough on why people come to the United States. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking as a great-grandson of people that came out of the Irish hunger. They come because they can't stay home anymore. There's oppression uh, and, and those kinds of things. The final point I would make, and I'll I'll just stop and see if you have any questions, is this is going to rip the the society in California in ways that nobody should support. We have 44,000 undocumented people in the city of San Francisco. So the federal government is going to come in the form of the Homeland Security people, and rip those people out. Some are grandparents, some are parents, some are children. Um, uh, the concern about this is very deep in California. And um, there are, for example, 23 school districts that have declared themselves sanctuary school districts. So this is taken very seriously here. And part I've read the most recent order by the president and he's trying to convert local authorities to to be do the federal job that they don't have and they're not they're not doing that in california they're refusing to do it they should they shouldn't have to do it Uh, and so there is about the whole thing a lack of congressional participation this is all coming from the white house as though all the president has to do is just issue orders and all of us are supposed to obey everything. And that's not the way our government works.
0: Is, is that part of a history of trying to understand exactly how far a presidential order can go? That always seems to be a point of contention.
3: It's a big part of it. And, you know, the president sadly took out after the Ninth Circuit. I read that opinion, too. They were very troubled by the fact that he ignored the asylum laws of the United States, which he has no authority to do can't do that all right Mm -hmm. and there were other there were other serious problems with that order and of course when the ninth circuit did what they thought was right and which i think was eminently correct the president took out after them and uh, attacked them and called them a so-called court we now have a reckless president who is uttering It was uttering things that he ought not to utter. We have a legislature and we have the judiciary. We also have the press. Mm -hmm. And he's gone after the press. All of this worries a great many people that what he thinks he's going to be is just the center of everything. That's a problem.
0: Well, he's done a very good job at inoculating his followers against facts. So I wonder when, when he's already he's raised emotions against the Ninth Circuit, he's raised emotions against the press, he's raised emotions against bad hombres and people who jump the line. It sounds like you're taking on a, a pretty heavy and long road here.
3: Well, it's a great pleasure to be a lawyer in times of this of this kind, and uh, presidents uh, have limits. Lawyers know about those limits. I carry the Constitution in my pocket. Uh, I, I I know what he can do and what he can't do. There's, there's complicated questions. But we didn't elect a king. Mm. We, uh, I didn't vote for him. You can tell that. <laughs> but the, the American people elected a human being to be president of the United States. And if he comes to rip up San Francisco and California... There is in place enormous legal resistance to that. Now, why, why would he do that when very nice people come here from Alabama and Texas? And they love San Francisco, and they love to go to the Chinese restaurants and all this kind of stuff. What is he doing? I don't, I don't think anybody's quite sure what he's doing. And I think the question has been raised. And it's a legitimate question as to his mental issues. Does he have them? I'm not competent to say.
0: But it's a he's worthy act- question. He's, it's a-
3: acting, he's acting in his aggressiveness like someone who perhaps has issues. And I think that's very important. I think that's terribly frightening, actually.
0: Is that something that would have any legal impact on defending a sanctuary issue, or is that that an issue that the court can't consider?
4: Well,
3: I'm not saying that as of today it would have an impact, but I think think it will have uh, an impact in the sense that the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution provides that if the president can't conduct business, then there's a procedure for him not conducting business. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. But we, could, we could get there, and I think if people are going to go to cocktail parties, they better read the 25th Amendment because you've got to be up to date on it, and people are talking about it in hushed tones, but they're talking about it. So I, I think back to Sanctuary, the mayor of San Francisco has indicated his resistance uh, to the presidential uh, edict, basically. And by the way— Sanctuary is not defined in the order that came out. Really? So it, it, No, it's not defined. And it, it varies. You referred to this at the top of this interview. You refer to the fact that it's really uh, different in different places.
4: Mm-hmm. And, of
3: course, that's true. No, it can be defined by the head of Homeland Security. The commissioner, I think, is the term used, and I think that's who they mean. And so... Not only is it vague, and not only is it a problem, and not only is it going to rip people right out of our society, uh, but it's it's just not at all clear what it is. I will say one other thing that's going to happen, and it's happening already. People that shouldn't be detained are being detained. There's a couple of stories on the wire today.
0: Yes, I was Uh, going to ask you about those, in fact.
3: Yeah, well, see, here's here's what's missing in the thinking inside the Beltway, okay? They're thinking at the White House that they'll just utter this issue, this edict, and describe this issue, and then everything will be fine. Homeland Security is ill-equipped to do this job in any kind of humane way. I've had a couple of cases involving Homeland Security. And they have serious problems. But here's what's going to happen. There'll be some uh, child, some parent, some grandparent, and they'll be put on a bus and they'll be dumped in Tijuana. They won't have any contacts in Tijuana. They may not have any money to do that. The Mexican government doesn't want them particularly. Mm-hmm. They'll probably try to be humane about it, but Mexico is not asking for them. Now, is that a proper American policy? No, it's not a proper American policy. The system is not structured for this kind of massive deportations. Yeah, and it- Yeah, go
0: ahead. One of the cases that you mentioned that's been hitting the wires, a French historian who was stopped at an airport in Houston and was almost turned around, and he's an historian of the Holocaust. And we've seen in just the last 24 hours, I think we're up to over a dozen bomb threats at various Jewish community centers. We've seen a number of cemeteries where Jewish headstones have been toppled. And I'm wondering if the fact that Trump hasn't addressed any of this, if it indicates some of the other problems with his in his administration, the presence of Steve Bannon, the welcoming of Gateway pundit, I, this is, an even a, a yet another wrinkle of how ugly this can get.
3: You know, I, I'm very fond of the poetry of Walt Whitman, and I'm not alone. A lot of Americans love that poetry because it sees the complexity of our population, and you have. President Trump, on the one hand, and you have Walt Whitman on the other. This country has been built by the complexities of the talents of people that came from all over the world. We have Silicon Valley down the road here, Mm -hmm. just south of San Francisco. They, They have had the benefit of people from all over the world who've come and who have science backgrounds and who have helped to make the future. Mm-hmm. uh this is a this is a no nothing administration this is uh they're shaking things up and they're not at all clear where that's going to lead to in my opinion and it's uh it's very very unfortunate they do not have a base uh they there may be uh, let's say a third of the people in the United States that think it's important and of those third What they really, and I have talked to some folks, what they really mean is they want people deported who are a security risk. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. And uh, that's one thing. But to pick out uh, a great many people who are not a security risk at all, people who have been in this country for 12 years, let's say, and who have families... And all that, this is, this is a mean and hard-edged policy, and it has no uh, rationale for it. We live in a time where, by all means, we need to be secure from ISIS and from other people that mean to do us harm. Absolutely we do. But this isn't going to help that.
0: Let me ask you one last question before I let you go, and that is one of the concerns I have when I see cases like this, I'm always happy to see them in action, but one of my big concerns is what's going to happen with the Supreme Court? We do know that there's that empty chair that the people who are in charge of making the appointment are not exactly the sanest or most compassionate people. Do you have any concerns about the cases that you're working on eventually going to a Supreme Court that might at that point be hopeless?
3: Well, I actually lecture on the Supreme Court uh, three or four times a year in California. And so I have researched uh, Judge Gorsuch, and I am concerned about him. I think that he's in favor of corporations in a a way that's not balanced, and he's against individuals, and I think uh, that's not a good thing. I think that he is has stated i've i've read these cases he has stated that he wants to cut he would cut agencies and their power and uh he's quite candid about that i assume that's one reason that he's been selected well uh what are those agencies doing well they're taking care of the environment they're taking care of medications uh, they're doing all manner of very important things and so there is alive in the country, this out of control idea that we're going to return to some small little government that's going to keep us safe and everything's going to be fine. And I just don't agree with that. And so I am, I am concerned about the Gorsuch nomination.
0: I want to tell you, I'm an admirer of your work, and I really appreciate your squeezing me in here on hey, short notice. So thank you thank for that. Thank you
3: so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: Jim Brosnahan is Senior Trial Counsel at Morrison Enforcer. We will put a link to his work up at the site at bradblog.com. So how does this mess on the immigration front figure into the wider picture of what Dear Orange Leader is up to? Heather Digby Parton joins me for a roundup here. She is the founder of Hullabaloo and one of the most influential, longest established political bloggers. You know her from Hullabaloo and her, well, her massive number of awards, Digby. It's always good to talk to you.
5: Thanks for having me, Angie. Uh, you,
0: you've written so much lately at uh, the Digby's blog spot, Blue, and then you've got an article in Salon we want to talk about. But I want to pick up where we just left off with the last interview I did. Jim Brosnahan in San Francisco, who's a strong civil rights supporter, many cases to his name. And he was talking about gradually working through the courts to use sanctuary cities against Donald Trump's assaults on immigrants. And lo and behold... Uh, that's your latest post at digby uh, Digsby blog so um tell me about this uh the, how this all figures into the Oscar ceremony, which you wrapped into it um and just his his policies going after the immigrants altogether. What are your thoughts on that?
5: well i've been sort of noticing uh, it, it's <laughs> trump ran on an anti immigrant platform as we know yes um and he you know he sort of he kind of bifurcated it during the the campaign into kind of two different ideas. One was the the Muslim ban, as we know, and the uh, he was going to repatriate uh, refugees uh, from the Middle East. and then there was also the wall and you know he was going to going to deport um, undocumented immigrants. Um, but I've been noticing that that what's really happening is is that these two things are kind of merging into one uh, gigantic sort of xenophobic anti immigrant uh law quote law and order policy, which I yes. think is going to also morph into a you know a, the, the his his idea about going into the inner cities and you know bringing law and order and safety because you can allegedly can't walk down the street you're you're going to get shot this is This is what I think his overarching domestic program is really all about. And you're starting to see that happen. And you can. And he's moved on this very quickly. It's not like he, he is not dawdling when it comes to this part of his program. Yeah. Um, and it's something that he has a, a, a lot of control over because so much of this is administered in the, in the uh, executive branch. Although, as you point out, the courts are the logical backstop here. And that's where a lot of the battle over this is going to be fought and lawyers like your previous guest uh, who will be doing heroic work on behalf of, you know, some very, very disenfranchised people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as as I mentioned to him, some of these cases are going to work themselves up to a Supreme Court that's either divided four to four, or worse, it's going to have a Trump appointee sitting there.
5: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we could easily—I I mean, I think it's logical. Now, we don't know which way—you So you know, we have uh, at least one justice on the court, on the conservative side, uh, Anthony Kennedy, who has been somewhat— um, sympathetic at times, and you don't know where the court is going to go in terms of looking at something like Donald Trump and seeing whether or not they can actually see the 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 dangers. I mean, I ha- I'm a cynic. Uh, you probably are too. Yes. About the right wing Supreme Court, and I wouldn't <laughs> want to put any faith in them. But nonetheless, you, you you know, you don't know necessarily, at least but not in detail, where that's going to go. But that's really where the the battle is going to be. But in the meantime. Trump has a tremendous amount of power, and he has empowered some very uh, you know uh, let's just put it this way. Uh, you know someone like Jeff Sessions, who is the the new attorney general, he has a long, long anti immigrant history he He wants to end legal immigration i mean mm-hmm. that that's how extreme he is. It's not illegal immigration is just step one for him. He really wants to to eliminate legal immigration, and he has a terrible record, as we all know, on race and ethnicity, and religion, generally speaking.
1: Yeah.
5: Uh, so this program of Donald Trump's, which I'm starting to see kind of take place, I mean, you can see where he's putting his stamp. For instance, over the weekend, or I guess it was on Friday, the New York Times had a very scary article about these new executive orders um, going for the uh, the Customs and Border Patrol and the ICE agents, uh, which is immigration and customs enforcement, I guess. Right. Um, the, in other words, the uniformed police that, that deal with immigration in various aspects of the federal government. Uh, Donald Trump uh, wrote, you know, he signed executive orders, which basically are allowing them to uh, stop anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they and we're starting to see signs of where that's happening. I mean, we're hearing horror stories. I'm sure you know, as your your previous guest pointed out. I mean, these, the way that they're harassing immigrants, scaring uh, entire communities, uh, yes. just horrifyingly, you know, frightened that they're, go- they're you know, they're stalking people at their kids' playgrounds. They're going. There was one horrible story of a woman who had uh, she had called you know, had gone to the authorities because she was being abused by her boyfriend and her boyfriend had reported her to the immigration authorities. And they went to the court where she was seeking um, protection and basically arrested her for deportation. I mean, it's horrible. I want another one with a, a brain tumor. Who was being treated, and and they went to the hospital and basically uh, detained her for for deportation. I mean, this is the kind of horror story. This is you know, and this is Trump. Meanwhile, is sitting at his meetings, talking about how it's a military operation and saying, you know, we're getting rid of the bad dudes. So apparently, mm-hmm. this lady who was. Uh, you know, her boyfriend was was uh, beating her up. Is one of the bad dudes, and mm. so you're seeing that. That and and in this article in the New York Times, I, I'm just circling back around to that briefly. The 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 agents are ecstatic about this because mm. up until now, the Obama administration, which by the way was no slouch when it came to deportation, they deported a lot of people, and it was kind of a scandal even at the time but they were they really were concentrating on the on people with felonies and criminal criminal backgrounds and violent backgrounds and they were forcing these agents to you know make a rational common sense determination as to where to how to prioritize their arrests, detentions, and deportations? Mm-hmm. Now they don't have to do that. And according to the New York Times article, they're all running around excited and happy and saying, "Our, our job is fun again." God, I mean, can you, you know, imagine it, them
0: even saying
5: that out I loud? I know, even thinking it. I mean, this is horrifying. And you know, this, this is Trump and his. This is, and they all really love Trump. And we knew that before the election. I wrote a lot about this, about how scary it was. That you know, I mean, virtually. All of the uniformed, you know, police organizations in the country backed him, and that was always a very scary thing. There were pictures of people, you know, of cops wearing MAGA hats and, you know, those red MAGA hats, and it was a very inappropriate kind of politicization, and according to this New York Times article, they're all very trump um centric in especially in the border patrol and immigration area mm-hmm. and and you know there are the people who are there that don't feel that way are feeling very marginalized i mean it's very it's a very difficult situation well here's the kicker according to foreign policy magazine they they published something over the weekend Uh, that uh, they're having you know Trump wants to add thousands of new officers and build more detention camps and really crank up this immigration um, detention and deportation force and they're having a hard time finding anybody who can pass polygraph and background checks so what's the answer to that they're going to eliminate the polygraph and background checks
0: so well, that just makes all what...
5: kinds of sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, we're going to get rid of the bad dudes. Apparently, maybe they're just going to hire them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it that sounds like. I mean, it's just—it is unbelievable that you know, we're, and and they are moving so quickly mm-hmm. and with such enthusiastic uh, cooperation by the agencies themselves. And you know, as I point out in my piece today. Um, you know, all throughout the government, we're finding a lot of resistance to this to the to the Trump administration. I mean, the EPA, you know, people in all the agencies are going, "Whoa, this is crazy." There's one area where they're not, and it's in the police agencies, and they are enthusiastically, it, you know, going along with whatever comes along. And and to me, that says something. I mean, I, I think that you've got to be crazy. Not to recognize that this is a very dangerous thing, the politicization of these police agencies under Donald Trump with this, this kind of global uh, xenophobia and racism that he's going to apply uh, is very, very scary. And I haven't even talked about the immigration ban and how that is also being, I mean, they're, they're now checking people's, you know, I mean, they, they question Muhammad Ali Jr. At yeah. the border. Yeah. And said, Where did you get that name? I mean, please. I mean, maybe they need to give intelligence tests. <laughs> these people no, no, they're Although, not going to do that. Sure they won't pass those. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, you know, where did you get that name? And, and he was there with his mother who, you know, showed pictures of them with, you know, Muhammad Ali and everything, Jeez. but it didn't matter. It would, you know, it so would be fine,
0: but we're laughing, but not funny.
5: I know. Uh,
2: it's not know,
0: funny. Let's take a little break here, and I'm going to come back with more from Digby, and we will check in with Dave Johnson on what Trump's proposed tax cuts mean in the real world. I'm Angie Quero. This is the (laughs) broadcast. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero, sitting in for Brad and Desi. We are in the midst of a conversation with award-winning political blogger Digby. Let's get back to that. Your salon piece that I that I got hold of you for. Um, one of the reasons this came to mind was because I saw a poll last week that 44 percent of those polled. And I don't – to be fair, I don't know if it was likely voters, unlikely voters, strange people. I don't know what it was. But 44 percent of those polled said they approved of the job that Donald Trump is doing. And that's a gut punch. But it also – it brings back that argument over whether we try to reach out to these people, whether we try to educate these people, find commonality. And your article is Forget About Reaching Out to Trump Voters, Democrats, that is a pointless, self-destructive strategy. So, so wrap on into that one for me.
5: Well, you know, this was coming sort of – I mean, there's been endless discussions since <laughs> the election on, you know, what went wrong, what to do, how to – how to do it and there has been a uh, you know a cascade of articles in the mainstream media about Trump voters there was during the election too it's like they were the only voters who mattered and after the election they again are the only voters who mattered um and it, there there was one recently that really made the rounds which was in the New York Times talking about Trump voters and they're very upset about the protests and feel that they're pushing them in – you know these Trump voters who may have regrets, but, you know, as long as they're seeing people protesting, it's, it makes them push the, pushes them further into the arms of the, you know, of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't come up with this theory myself. I, this is something I read by Paul Waldman, who's in, in the American Prospect that I thought was just really correct. And so I, that's what I talked about in my, in my salon piece. He, sh- he, he very persuasively argues in my view that, you know, at going into 2018, the only thing that matters is the resistance it is absolute. you've got to keep people angry energized you've got to have them mobilizing you've got to keep them going reaching out to trump voters is not going to do that that is not what is going to keep the democratic coalition however divided we are whatever different ideas we might have about policy or whatever the only thing that matters at this point is trying is looking at twenty eighteen on an electoral basis is right what i 'm talking about, but the only is looking at twenty eighteen and trying to turn over the congress it's a hugely heavy lift I mean you know they 've gerrymandered it like crazy they've we've got like eighteen seats up and you know in the Senate, so there's a good chance we could lose but if this energy continues and there is mobilization like we 've never seen before. We saw what happened in the streets on the day after the inauguration. There are marches all the time, various groups coming together, a lot of local activity. If they can keep that up, there is a possibility they could turn over to Congress. And it's, it's all we should care about on an electoral basis, in my view. And the way you do that, particularly in a midterm, which is very difficult for Democrats, we rarely are able to, you know, we're sort of the presidential year party, and we tend to you know sort of whiff on the midterms yes. that can't happen and by the way you remember this we did it in 2006 and we turned over the congress and uh it could happen again and it's essential because it's the only way to really stop stop trump i mean there have you know i mean we've got very little to work with here so this is this is absolutely essential to do it so that was That was Wallman's theory, that you want to keep the anger and the energy up. And the way to do that, the way to, you know, dissipate energy is to start compromising with, you know, Trump and trying to reach out to his voters. No, you want to keep your own coalition energized and focused. Now, after 2018 is when you start looking for, there's a group of of voters out there, which he defines as, he sort of broke it down into three groups. There was the diehard Trump voters, forget them. Mm -hmm. They love him. They're, you know, they're never going to be Democrats. There is the the mainline Republicans who just, you know, they stuck with their party. They thought, you know, no matter what, they couldn't vote for that woman, you know, whatever. And then there was this group, and it's the smallest of the group, but we don't need very many voters uh, from this group. But, you know, they are the ones who just want to change. They're going, you know, my life sucks. I've got problems, everything. I hate everything about Washington, et cetera, et cetera. And they just went, let's take a flyer on Trump and see what happens. Those people may be gettable, or at least some of them. Well, let me pitch one more
0: question before I let you go, Heather. And that is uh, the emergence of George W. Bush, of all people, uh, to talk about what Trump is doing to the press and the emergence of, I still can't believe this, Daryl Issa, who (laughs) who has come out in favor of a special prosecutor for the Russian connections. And I'm... Encouraged, even though I'm a little bit skeptical that some of these voices are emerging to preach common sense and perhaps a defense of what the country is supposed to be about. And I just wondered what you make of all that.
5: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there are two different things, two different different motivations with with Isa and and W. Isa barely survived the election, and he's in a he's in a district that was very. Um, pro Clinton. I don't know, it won by 8 points, she won by 8 points or something there. In fact, all of Orange County in California is <clears throat> now going very blue, which is a kind of a shocking development. Um not really. It's been coming for a while, but now mm-hmm. it's finally gone over. Um but Isa has you know, he's got people showing up at at his offices that are screaming in his face, and I think he sees the writing on the wall that that um, you know, he's going to have a hard time surviving in 2018 unless he does he comes out and gets ahead of this. Um, and maybe, you know, he's an opportunist. So maybe he sees an opportunity there to be one of the, you know, the heroes in this thing. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Bush is very interesting to me because, yeah, look, I don't trust these guys either. I, I get it, you know. And, and believe me, if it weren't for George W. Bush, Donald Trump wouldn't be where he is today either. They set the table and rightfully we're mistrustful, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is George W. Bush. But it's so interesting because um what he came out to say was there were three things that he talked about one was the press which he was actually quite eloquent on that you know i mean i realized i, I thought the guy was kind of you know subverbal so did I. when he was in the in the white house but compared to trump he does sound like winston churchill i mean he's that <laughs> the, the, the dramatic difference between the two um and he came out and said you know that he was a defense of the free press and saying that you know it's absolutely and he says that you know power is corrosive and you need the press to kind of check you on that and it's very interesting and I'm going to have to think about that with him because I know that by the end of his term he was kind of rejecting Cheney's, um, you know Cheney's counsel mm-hmm. and you know he didn't but for instance he didn't he didn't. Uh, Uh, pardon Scooter Libby the way Cheney wanted him to, and they were kind of at each other's throats towards the end, and I don't think they're particularly friendly now. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe we'll have to go back and look there and see if maybe, you know, Junior had some epiphany at some point that maybe he had been led astray by his, uh, you know, gray eminence. Uh, Dick Cheney, but in any case, it doesn't matter. He still got us into Iraq, so his history is <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I,
0: I have to say the the sheer number of politicians who are going to be resurrected historically by with the phrase compared to Trump. I mean, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
5: virtually everyone but Hitler. That's, you know, who, who who is he? Who you know, so far he hasn't done. You know, I mean, there's Saddam, there's Gaddafi, there's Pol Pot. You know, there's a whole whole slew of real of real monsters out there. Um that, so far, since he hasn't actually you know committed a genocide or set off a nuclear bomb, I guess we can say he's better than them, but it that's really the that's the group, I think, that we're, uh, that we're finding ourselves sort of thinking of him in terms of.
0: Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> I'm going to
5: let you I'm go. sorry, Angie. No. No, hey, I'm... Happy Monday,
0: everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the cheery <laughs> greetings. And that's Heather Digby Parton. You'll find her work on Hullabaloo or digby's blog.blogspot.com. Thank you so much, Heather.
5: Thanks, Angie. Thanks All right,
0: bye-bye. So we know Donald has many bigly friends whose fortunes he would like to protect. Or, hey, who knows? maybe he has really been persuaded by those who pull his strings that tax cuts are a lovely thing for everybody. So once again, I am very pleased to bring Dave Johnson to the show. He's got some thoughts on tax cuts that are showing up right now on his website, seeingtheforest.com. You can also check him out at ourfuture.org. And Dave, then we're going to get into some infrastructure issues because the flooding uh, on the West Coast has really pointed out how, how bad a state we're in. But if they're talking about tax cuts for the rich, what are we really in store for?
4: What are we in store for? Well, we're in store for uh, greater inequality as all the money starts shifting even more and more to a few at the top. Uh, the bamboozlements they use are things like taxes take money out of the economy. You hear that one a lot. Yeah. yeah. Anybody who knows anything about how this works? I mean, it kind of sounds good, but it's preposterous. How about tax cuts create growth? That's a big one. They talk about pro-growth economics. They always use the word growth. And it, it kind of sounds like, well, you know, if, if and they always say people will have more money if you cut taxes. But in a, in a democracy, government's job is to do things that make our lives better. We, the people, get together, we pull our resources, and we say, let's do this. That's the purpose and the job of our government in a democracy, right? So we pull resources, we tax, and we invest public investment. And when when people have a say, they say we want to have good infrastructure. There we go with the infrastructure. We say we want good education, but we also want things that make our economy prosper in the future. Courts, research, scientific research, all of those things are the fertile ground from which businesses can grow and prosper, and that includes regulation of big businesses, which tend to to stomp out the smaller businesses, okay? So in a democracy, taxes are essential. High taxes are essential, and the high taxes at the top come out of the gains of that public investment that creates prosperity. Everybody gains, you know, we're supposed to get good jobs, haha, good wages, <laughs> benefits, And all of that, that's what happens in a democracy. The other side of that is that those who gain the most from that public investment in infrastructure, education, scientific research, courts, all of the things that make that economy prosper, those who gain the most pay back Mm -hmm. through taxes. And it circulates, okay? But then along came this uh, idea as we had reached a point where we had done a really good job of building that idea of, of public structures, call them, you know, courts and actual structures of infrastructure and things like that, that, that people started saying, hey, that's our money. Let's take it. In other words, they wanted to get those fruits and divert them to themselves. And they said, let's cut those taxes uh, and, and let's, let's keep that money for ourselves. They started this anti-government, anti-democracy drumbeat of propaganda against the government against taxes, but really when you look at where those taxes, tax cuts went, it went to a few people. Okay, mm-hmm. And they started to cut the investment in infrastructure education courts. It started with the California Prop 13, but then it was Reagan, and the cuts, the tax cuts forced cuts in that public investment mm-hmm. that, that made the economy grow. So tax cuts don't grow the economy. But they force cuts in the things that do make the economy grow. What happened with Reagan and with that philosophy is that they ate the seed corn. Tax cuts of the 80s ate the seed corn of our prosperity. And now the education system, all the cutbacks, scientific research cutbacks, the space program, huge. Uh, and especially look around the infrastructure. So I just talked too much. Go ahead. No,
0: quite all right. I, I always enjoy do it.
4: When I'm on your show, don't
0: I? <laughs> Well, you know, you brought up something uh, in your article, the top article on Seeing the Force that I hadn't known about, and I was just talking to Jim Brosnahan about the Trump administration's uh, stamping on undocumented immigrants and other people who are trying to get into the country legitimately, and he used the word mean. He talked about how some of the moves on behalf of the Trump administration, in addition to being ill-advised, they're just plain mean. And what I didn't know until I read your column is that charitable deductions which anyone with compassion would kick up in the face of uh, taxes going down and less money going to people who really need it. It's I'm going to read from your from your article here. One place that Trump tax cuts plan to quote, pay for the huge windfall for the rich is by Limiting or eliminating one the mortgage tax deduction and eliminating tax deductions for charitable giving how how can you even begin to justify that?
4: There's no justification that hits the middle class, etc. Yes, overall though, in the bigger term in the picture of democracy, tax deductions for charity take away that public consensus decision of where that money ought to go. Yes. So if you're if you're a billionaire and you get a you know a, a hundred million dollar tax break because you give the money yourself you're making the decision instead of we the people mm-hmm. so there's a bigger picture, but the justification under Trump is is not at all reasonable it, basically it, it just takes away our ability to get these deductions and it takes away the contributions it's not like Trump's going to make up the charitable contributions out of government giving is it no not likely no. so it's just it's just going to defund the the kinds of charitable contributions people make.
0: Well, as you said, you know, taxes are a way to... to fund we the people and our common needs, and we already know that infrastructure. I mean, even under Barack Obama, bridges were falling into the water. Um, it's notable that one of the one of the things Mike Pence did when he was governor of Indiana was he privatized the toll roads and he you know turned a profit off of those instead of paying to maintain them for the public. And I know you're keeping a sharp look on what's happening with infrastructure. We saw the big hole that opened up when the Oroville Dam was spilling over. That's a big indicator of what is to come. Do you see any hope, obviously not from Donald Trump, but somewhere in Congress, that enough people will understand our bridges and our roads and our electrical lines and our water lines are falling apart and need to be dealt
4: with? People understand that, sure. Uh, Everybody gets it now, finally. The infrastructure is crumbling, the roads, the bridges, but not just that. The, The rail system, we go to Europe and look at the infrastructure they have, the good roads, but the high-speed rail, things like that, okay, no, we're so far behind now, all of it thanks to the tax cuts of, of Reagan and that whole philosophy of it. But, but now they're going to use that. Now we're about to face, as you said with Pence, we're about to face a wave of what's called privatization, where mm. we build a road, you know, there's a road, but to use that road, you've got to pay for it. And the money that you pay doesn't go to the public. It's going to go to a few people. Privatization of government things always means a few people get the benefit of something that used to be for all the people.
0: Dave, always a joy. And I love pointing people to your work, so I will do that. Seeing the Forest is Dave's website, and you can find that at seeingtheforest.com. And he's also with the Campaign for America's Future, and that's at ourfuture.org. Dave, thank you. I'll talk to you again.
4: Thanks so much.
0: And that is it for the Bradcast. No more optimistic than it was last time, huh? But I hope you have found value in it. I'm hoping Brad and Desi have stretched their legs and their minds beyond the confines of politics because they are back on the mic tomorrow. I look forward to seeing you again. I'm Angie Currow. Now more than ever, good luck, world.